0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast on Germany. Uh, We are in the middle of our October interviews uh, discussing uh, the new and upcoming historians dealing with German history. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Michael Kota, a graduate student to Seton Hall University, who just actually uh, uh, got his thesis passed with the road to total war, Anglo-German rivalry, 1880-1914. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Michael.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, So uh, congratulations uh, again on um, successfully defending your thesis and having it uh, in the midst of being published. I know there's a little heartache dealing with that, but it will get out eventually. I promise. Uh, I bet you're super excited for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been a long process, uh, about a year of research and writing. So definitely uh, glad glad to be done with it and looking forward to sharing it with everybody.
0: I'm doing that in the middle of COVID and restrictions <laughs> on travel and all that. That that all that all together must have been rough to deal with. But congratulations once more. Thank you. So uh during these interviews, uh Michael, we like to um just allow the person to discuss their subject. And uh we are dealing with World War One, which several of my listeners might know, but I was hoping we could go into a uh, just a general discussion of the setting. And uh, of the people that we're dealing with um, that are causing this rivalry between the Germans and the British.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of those subjects that people know about, but uh, they tend to think of it as overly complicated or one of those things that, you know, people wandered into war without knowing what they're doing. But I think one of the things I found in my research was uh, it was a war that was really driven by national interests. Uh, particularly those between Britain and Germany, which I see as really the main rivalry of the pre-war era. Uh, so, so my work mainly focuses on the years between 1880 and 1914. Uh, I go a little bit back earlier towards German unification, um, but most of the rivalry really took off in the 1880s and later as Germany expanded from a continental power into a global empire. And... Uh, Basically, one of the things that I, I argue in my thesis, the main, the main argument is that uh, the total war, which we saw in World War I, which many scholars really see as the first total war, uh, was truly driven by the total rivalry of Britain and Germany before the war. Uh, there was nothing that happened between the two powers or even not including one of them, which didn't impact that uh, dual-sided relationship. So it touched on aspects of economics, strategy, uh, diplomacy, culture, as well as uh, internal politics and in society, and I did not see that sort of relationship between any of the other rival powers that ended up fighting in World War One. So what we, what I did mainly was try to delve into that rivalry, understand how it operated and who the main players were, as well as how it ended out, ended up playing out in practice, uh, leading up to a war that seemed to many unthinkable, but looking back, almost seemed inevitable. Um, So there are a few main main players that I focused on, both on the British and German sides. Uh, Politician-wise, at least from Britain, uh, Lord Salisbury was the Prime Minister of uh, Britain in the late 19th century. Um, He was conservative, uh, was someone who was very much interested in consolidating the British Empire, retrenchment, and really focusing on protecting the global hegemony that Britain had grown over the past 30 to 40 years. Um, There were other politicians, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, the father of Neville Chamberlain, if uh, your readers know about World War War II. Um, Neville Chamberlain obviously is an important figure leading up to that. His father, Joseph Chamberlain, was a very important British politician in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, He was someone who switched between liberal and conservative parties depending on kind of what floated his boat at the moment politics wise uh, but he was really a strong advocate for an aggressive expansionist uh, british empire which at the time uh, was really the, the top dog on the global playing field uh, germany was really the big rising power in europe uh, obviously there are others like united states and japan that were really kind of growing into really powerful new economies and territorial empires as well uh, but germany was truly the main Rival for Britain at the time, uh, and that global expansion, which happened throughout the late 19th century and into the early 20th, uh, kind of put the two rivals at at odds with one another more so than they had been in the past. Um, obviously, on the German side, Otto von Bismarck always is is a major figure. Um, in my thesis, he kind of plays a bit of a side role. Uh, he's kind of earlier on in uh, in the development of the rivalry and. He actually was a figure that to me was someone more um, related in peace versus war, at least when it came to Britain and Germany after the unification. Um, He was very much interested in kind of keeping Germany in in peace, allowing it to unify and grow its economy, uh, which it was absolutely blowing up at the time. Uh, One of the main reasons that it came into conflict with Britain was uh, economics. As Germany kind of expanded into a productive powerhouse also dominating new industries like electronics chemicals uh things like that it began to surpass britain in many ways uh which led to a lot of anxiety in britain and british politicians especially over the the issue of empire
0: Mm. Uh,
1: another figure from germany that was especially important was uh, bernhard von bulow the chancellor of germany uh from 1900 through i believe 1908 or 1909 um He was a major politician before that. He ran the foreign office and was especially interested in what's called Weltpolitik, uh, world policy, which is a major theme of of my thesis. Basically, what it was was a politics of global expansionism for for Germany, both economically and strategically. And Bülow was truly one of the avatars of that. Uh, He led the movement to make that the theme of German internal politics. Um, and he used this external expansionism and colonial fever uh, truly to build his own power internally. Uh, so he was one of the main drivers of this policy, which ended up causing so much conflict between Britain and Germany. And the final uh, final figure really important on the German side is Alfred von He uh, He's really the father of the imperial German navy, and the growth of a blue water navy, a navy that basically was meant to go around the world and not just service Germany's territorial waters. uh, That was seen as a major threat to Britain, uh, given Britain's maritime dominance and the importance of the British Navy in terms of holding together an empire that spanned the globe. Uh, So Tirpitz, as someone who was trying to grow German naval power, uh, was someone who became a major antagonist uh, for Britain and was seen as such in the press and even in in the public imagination.
0: Interesting. So we have, um, we see a general drive between the two of them, um, between these players for uh, competition on military and economic and um, I guess you could say, is there an imperial prestige level? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any other uh, areas that these two uh, uh, start to become rivals in?
1: Sure. Yeah. One thing that I, that I found interesting when doing research uh, for my thesis was this book by a man named Richard Faber. Uh, He wrote something called The Vision and the Need. It was basically about late uh, Victorian imperialism in Britain, and he classified various motives for imperialism uh, that he's labeled various different empires over history as as having. Uh, Colonizing, obviously, you know, finding a place for settlement and aggressive motivation, which was kind of how it sounds, trying to go out and conquer territories, uh, as well as missionary and leadership motives, which are basically as, as missionary was mostly religious. Uh, but in the future did become about culture and leadership is about, you know, kind of global prestige uh, as well as economic and strategic motives. Uh, Faber thought it was interesting that uh, Britain he saw as really the only empire that categorized on all six of these motives. Uh, But as I was doing research, I actually found that Germany was very similar. And I think that similarity and that broad based competition kind of exacerbated the rivalry. Um, There's this effect in, uh, artificial intelligence, and, and I don't know if, if anyone's watched the show Westworld, uh, called the Uncanny Valley, basically as something becomes more closely related to a human, it looks more and more concerning or weird to us uh, until it gets to that point of being exactly the same. And I kind of saw that same effect as happening with Britain and Germany. Um, German imperialism, especially with people who were proponents of both politic, like Bulow, uh, was distinctly and deliberately modeled on British imperialism as having a very broad, um, kind of, in a way, liberal uh, in terms of trade, in terms of trying to expand into different areas and spread Uh, good governance uh, was something that the Germans especially were very much interested in. Um, But all these different areas of competition uh, tended to kind of reinforce each other on both sides of the North Sea. So obviously you had Britain building a huge colonial empire um, covered, you know, about a quarter of the world's surface. Uh, And not all of these were settlement colonies. Uh, Many were obviously South Africa, Canada, uh, the United States much, much earlier in time, uh, as well as Australia and New Zealand. And these areas were really gaining lots of immigrants, both from Britain itself, as well as from other European polities, including Germany. Um, And one of the reasons Germany wanted these colonies was to be able to have outposts of Germandom, they'd say, in different areas of the world. Uh, Terpitz himself took a big trip across the United States, uh, I believe in the late 1800s. He was on the way to the Far East, and he he went to Chicago, which at the time was actually the third largest German city on the planet. Um, Obviously not in Germany. Obviously, the Germans that went to Chicago and lived in the United States didn't really retain those intense cultural and political connections to the homeland, Uh, and that was seen as something that was missing from Germany. Uh, whereas the british colonies south africa canada etc they oftentimes did retain political and cultural ties to the metropole Uh, so german politicians often saw themselves as missing out and really wanted to rectify that so they really searched a lot for these uh, places where people could settle Uh, they really got a late start compared to britain france even small players like belgium and so They really kind of were rushing for the last places that were truly able to um, be okay for uh, European colonization in terms of climate, temperature, et cetera, uh, which were very few and far between at the time. So part of the German strategy involved kind of creating merchant colonies or or peaceful penetration, they would call it, where they really kind of set up German areas within other sovereign nations uh, to exploit them economically, to grow political ties, and eventually to build settlement colonies. Uh, So this was something that they did in Venezuela, especially in South America, uh, as well as in the Ottoman Empire, which was a a big theme of of later on in my thesis.
0: Interesting. So um, uh, that would be a different style of uh, colonization and, um, uh, I guess, nation-building than compared to what they would be doing in uh, the Pacific Islands and in uh, Africa.
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think uh, in some of the African colonies, especially Southwest Africa, they did try to do colonization. um, But a lot of that was more trade oriented, especially as it started out. Um, They built, especially in Africa, a strong relationship with the Boer Republics before the Boer War in the the early 1900s. And that was actually one thing that was seen as a major threat by Britain. Uh, The Boer Republics ended up being incorporated after the Boer War into British South Africa. Uh, but before then, they were independent, nominally independent republics that uh, were initially settled by Dutch co- colonists, but had very strong German cultural ties uh, and actually had strong German political ties as well. Um, so oftentimes there was relationships between the Boer political leaders and German political leaders, as well as German merchants and colonists elsewhere in Africa uh, in linking those domains together economically and militarily was something that did draw the two empires, Britain and Germany, into more conflict. Uh, The same thing happened in a different degree in the South Pacific. Germany often was searching there for coaling stations and stopover points for infrastructure. Uh, Infrastructure was a major part of my thesis. I'm I'm sure we can touch on that later. Um, But one major aspect of the rivalry overall was uh, the thought of uh, the American naval theorist, Alfred Thayer Mahan. Uh, His book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, uh, was a major, major influence on all of the um, major world empires uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Britain and Germany especially, but also the United States, France and others. Uh, Essentially, he argued that as economic interests expanded, there became a need to build settlement colonies uh, for outlets for goods, to get raw materials, to do trade. And as the colonial empire grew on the back of this economic trade, a large Blue Water Navy would be required to protect that trade and to link those colonies. And one of the things that was necessary for linking all those colonies was uh, coaling stations so that the ships of the time would have places to stop off that would be safe and secure, where you'd be able to trade and where you'd be able to have little outlets of for Germany uh, power in various areas. So. South Pacific was critical for linking Germany's bases in China, as well as their bases in, West, in Eastern Africa and in South America, uh, where they had no settlement colonies, as obviously South America was not, at the time, uh, run by any Europeans, but was a major, major outlet for British and for German trade, and was one of the places where Germany actually had the largest percentage of their foreign investment. Uh, was in south was in south america particularly venezuela Uh, so finding those way stations in between um, in between their territorial acquisitions and their major economic interests was very important Uh, so the south pacific especially was like that but also became uh, issues in the north atlantic Uh, much later on 1911 there was a crisis in agadir in western morocco uh, on the north atlantic coast where uh, where germany was trying to find A naval port trading base was kind of a mix of the both. All of these were really dual purpose, which was another reason I think the rivalry tended to become more aggressive, is that all of these economic moves were seen by politicians and by the public as also being strategic and militarily oriented. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. But that self-perception kind of really increased the level of antagonism. There was no uh, aspect of this you know, sort of search for markets that was seen as, you know, unthreatening. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, other powers were seen that way by both Britain and Germany. Uh, but as time went on, each saw each other as the primary
0: threat. Interesting. Um, I uh, I know from a little bit of my research, the um, uh, Wilhelm crosses the line in between the rivalry and the adoration of um uh, the british i was just curious uh, uh what what role would you have uh, prescribed him in, in this uh in this rivalry between the team
1: i think he's very important uh it's it's one of those things where i think in, in my thesis i ended up writing more about structural factors than and direct human uh, influence um, most of that was honestly space and time limitations i would have loved to write about that and hopefully i'll be able to expand on it in the future um but I do think the personal and individual uh, impact was important. And Kaiser Wilhelm was truly one of the figures that I think made the most impact, uh, at least in terms of the general Anglo-German rivalry. Uh, as you said, he was someone who kind of blended that admiration and antagonism. Um, mainly, obviously, he was Queen Victoria's grandson. Uh, so there was a direct familial connection there between the British royal family and and uh, the German. And uh, he also was someone who was very mercurial, um, really bouncing up and down in terms of what he wanted to do and uh, what he didn't want to do. He was someone who was very much influential in the creation of the German Navy, and the Imperial German Navy was a major catalyst for the rivalry itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think with respect to that, he definitely played a driving role, uh, I think, without Kaiser Wilhelm's real obsession with navalism. I don't think uh, the German Navy would have been as large a factor in the rivalry. It may not have grown to the uh, point that it did when it became really the second greatest Navy in the world behind Britain uh, at the time of the first world war. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was someone also who tended to really kind of put his foot in it a lot. Uh, He made a lot of errors that were unnecessary, mostly because he basically said what was on his mind without really thinking about it. Um, The main example I talk about in my thesis with respect to that is uh, the infamous Daily Telegraph interview in 1908. Uh, Basically, what happened is uh, he often holidayed in in Britain, which is kind of interesting when you think about it, Mm -hmm. Um, because you couldn't really imagine leaders in, say, the pre-World War II era, you know, going across and you couldn't see Hitler holidaying in uh, Cornwall or something like that. It's just unthinkable. Um, But Kaiser Wilhelm would often go to Britain and kind of hang out on the seaside and uh, especially for yachting, he was really big into yachting, um, and there was a time he stayed with a British, you know, minor royal for a summer. They chatted often about very, you know, candidly about uh, the Anglo-German rivalry, about perceptions of Germany in the British public, uh, and this these conversations over the course of several months were written up by this royal and published in the Daily Telegraph, a major newspaper in Britain. Um, the interview itself was a sensation. It blew up immediately on both sides of the North Sea. People in um, Germany were basically thinking that the Kaiser betrayed them by saying that he was friendly with with Britain. He didn't have any ill will. Um, He called one of his famous quotes in this was calling the British mad, mad as March hares. I really thought they were insane for thinking that the Germans were so dangerous. Uh, But in the same interview, he also said that most of the German population really thoroughly disliked Britain. So it was that that kind of split between, you know, like and dislike and the fact that the Kaiser himself was putting himself on the side of Britain, that really antagonized people in Germany, especially the ones who were pushing for more conflict. Mm -hmm. And in the same interview, he also said that, you know, he was helping to craft, you know, major naval strategy in both Britain and Germany, which was total nonsense. Um, Yeah, totally, totally ridiculous. Uh, but also British public at the time reading the interview, you know, they didn't really believe the Kaiser was on their side. And they but they did believe him when he said that everyone in Germany dislikes them. Uh, so it ended up kind of backfiring both ways. And the interesting thing is, technically, as all of these interviews with heads of state at the time were, it was sent back to Berlin for uh, approval before it was published. And it was an unfortunate twist of faith. Both Bülow, who was the prime minister at the time, or the chancellor, my apologies. Uh, as well as his secretary of foreign affairs, both were on vacation. So it ended up going into a desk of someone very minor in the foreign office who didn't really feel qualified to edit the words of the Kaiser uh, and ended up publishing it verbatim, which obviously caused a major, major issue. Uh, Ended up falling on Kaiser Wilhelm mostly in terms of the blame. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Bulow and his relationship with the Kaiser was never the same after that, and he ended up resigning a couple years later
0: yes he uh he always had a string of of the uh, chancellors going in and out basically through his reign um so uh you've talked about these uh the institutional rivalries um being a major part of the Anglo-Briti- anglo british anglo anglo british anglo-german <laughs> relations um um, can we go a little bit more into detail about uh, each of these uh, different columns of this rivalry?
1: Sure, sure. So um, oftentimes, obviously, we talked a bit about the diplomacy part of it and the, and the governmental side. Uh, a bit more into that. That's, that's, a, that's definitely a big focus of what I'm on. And uh, in both of the foreign offices in Britain and Germany, that was kind of the, the way diplomacy happened through the ambassadors, through the foreign offices. Um, oftentimes, each had diplomats in the same place that would be competing uh, with each other. And as time went on, uh, both sides became really much more aggressive towards the other after various things happened to kind of break perceptions of friendliness. Uh, it's interesting. If you go back to the unification of Germany, uh, Britain and Germany were not really opposed. Uh, historically, Britain and Prussia were, were friendly. They worked together against Napoleon. They worked together in the seven years war. Um, and so, when, when Germany unified, often people in Britain were not unhappy about that at all. They were, they were very pleased, especially uh, liberals at the time who were very much pro-nationalism uh, on the European continent. So kind of seeing the unifications of Italy and Germany was a big deal. Uh, as time went on, though, and Germany became more assertive, especially abroad, uh, they tended to, on a diplomatic scale, t- try to link things together. Uh, British diplomats as having this enormous worldwide empire to, to kind of rule over and figure out how to keep safe they tried to do very minor deals with local uh, powers so with france for example if they had border disputes they'd try to work something out for just the border dispute of indochina and india for example or uh, sudan and french north africa Um, but they often just centered on that they didn't deal with anything in europe Uh, the way the german diplomats kind of approached this was to link those issues together uh, which was something that was a big uh, no-no, I guess, for for the British Foreign Office. Uh, so you'd see something happen where um, there would be a, a dispute over colonial borders in East Africa. And instead of trying to just follow the British lead and figure out, you know, do a border commission and figure out, you know, which side of this border is this river on or whatnot, uh, the German diplomats would often try to get Britain to commit to Germany's European security. Uh, or join the Triple Alliance outright, uh, which was something that Britain was not interested in doing. This was during the period of what's called splendid isolation, uh, where Britain essentially stayed aloof from continental issues and focused on both issues at home and within its own empire. Uh, So kind of getting involved and embroiled in continental spats was not something they were interested in. And as time went on and these diplomatic overtures felt more and more like, uh, it was actually quoted, some, some British diplomats called it blackmail, um, as time went on and that happened more and more, uh, the trust level really kind of diminished and it made it a lot harder for both sides to kind of work things out, uh, on the economic side of things. Uh, as I said, Germany was really growing and, uh, as, as an economic power, uh, Britain, oftentimes many historians talk about it really declining in this era as an economic power. It was no longer the workshop of the world. Um, uh, but one thing that I found a lot in my research was that It was actually thriving in many different ways. Uh, It it had a surplus in what's called invisible trade. So we think of trade as being trade in goods. Uh, Invisible trade is services, basically. So at this time, Britain was building out its international banking system, Uh, its communications, its insurance, uh, especially as global trade exploded in the late 19th century. uh, Insurance was was critical. Uh, You couldn't ship a cargo from China to Germany without having insurance on the ship. Uh, and on the cargo. And Britain was really the uh, entrepot for that across all the world. They basically, it kind of seems counterintuitive, but they basically made it easier for every other European power to build an empire uh, by providing them the services that they needed to do that. Uh, So it was kind of counterintuitive, but by doing that and kind of shifting to that sort of more investment uh, facilitation framework britain was able to really prolong its economic power much longer than it would have had it stayed with manufacturing as its prime uh, base so that was something that was really important to britain as time went on and as especially after the turn of the uh, turn of the 20th century germany started to do more of those facilitating services as well uh and they were really the only power that was able to do that to the extent they did uh france hadn't had large banking interests but Uh, They often were not as well capitalized as British ones were. Uh, The German ones were pretty novel. Uh, Deutsche Bank was enormous. Uh, It financed so much infrastructure across the world. Uh, It financed state governments as well, like uh, the Ottoman Bank. They also had enormous shipping lines. Uh, Very quickly, Germany became one of the world's leaders in uh, international shipping. Uh, And that carrying trade of basically taking goods from one country's colonies to another... Uh, was extremely lucrative Mm -hmm. Uh, and at the time it was not uh, this is kind of the post mercantilist era so it was no longer the case that british ships had to carry all goods from all british colonies back to britain you know they had it more that they could have competition for that Uh, and germany was really a a big proponent of that competition because they ended up scoring quite quite well in it uh by i think the world war one they had Two of the largest uh, ships in the world uh, in terms of passenger shipping uh, and their passenger lines uh, hamburg america was one of them and a norddeutsche lloyd were the two real big ones i actually think both of those companies are still in existence uh doing shipping now and they, they were enormous they shipped things all over the world and they really kind of broke in on a lot of that british trade uh which ended up causing even more panic within within london um Obviously, the merchants who were building these, you know, cheap manufactured goods that they were selling to colonial markets uh, had already really kind of seen that German threat earlier uh, because their goods were getting outcompeted all across the world. Uh, But the key players in the London financial industry kind of didn't get that level of threat until after the turn of the century, Mm -hmm. uh, when Germany became more powerful economically and kind of diversified into those more. Uh, advanced sorts of, not really industries, but service industries, mm-hmm. um, and so that was definitely a major part of the rivalry. That economic competition, uh, with respect to cultural competition, uh, it was also very interesting. Um, basically, Germany at the time, uh, there's a great book by a scholar named Mudres Ekstein's uh, called The Rights of Spring. It's about the First World War, but it talks about the lead up as well. And he basically labels Germany as the most modern and avant-garde nation uh, on the world stage. Basically, the, they were on the height of, in the forefront of culture, uh, Kultur, as they would say. Um, they had worker, uh, they had works like Wagner's operas uh, that were really kind of at the top of the form, uh, dance, artwork, things like that, literature, uh, very much new and pushing boundaries, uh, very much interested in aestheticism and romantic ideas uh, ideology um and they were compared very kind of favorably in their eyes with uh british culture which was considered kind of what's a a dictatorship of form so Mm -hmm. britain was very formal very rules-based um while germany was much more free-flowing and uh what they saw as as better culture um so there was a competition there more on mostly on the german side than the british uh, I think I, they kind of had that little brother effect in a way, mm-hmm. uh, where the Germans saw their culture as better and saw themselves as truly the uh, having a historical destiny to be a major world player. But at the time, uh, especially in the earlier period that I studied, uh, they were really far behind. So kind of catching up and, and getting up to the stage where they thought they deserved to be, uh, as Bernhard von Bülow said in a very famous speech, having a place in the sun. That was something that was very important uh, to them, and uh, came up very often in uh, scholarly articles and writing at the time. Um, there was a uh, book published uh, called *Merchants and Heroes* uh, by Werner Sombart. I think it was 1916, uh, early on in World War One, and he talked about the dichotomy really between Britain and Germany. Britain as kind of a nation of merchants, where they focused on trade. They they were really kind of cut and dry not really doing much besides focusing on the bottom line whereas germany was a nation of heroes a romantic nation that was really kind of achieving a civilizational destiny Uh, and that kind of difference in viewpoint uh, did cause antagonism uh, especially on the german side where they saw that they were unfairly behind uh, in their own eyes Um, socially and politically there were some interesting aspects as well uh, more so about how uh, distaste for the other power was used politically uh, to gain to gain seats, to gain electoral victories. Um, a couple examples of that were pretty important. One was uh, the uh, Navy laws that passed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, basically building the German Navy out. There were a few laws that were passed that were uh, very important. And this was really, I mean, uh, at the time the German army was still organized on a state by state basis. So you'd have a Bavarian army, a Prussian army, obviously in wartime, they'd all kind of be under the King or the emperor. Uh, but before then they would all kind of still be in their own separate, uh, spheres. The German Navy was truly a national organization and it was one of the few that was actually, uh, codified as a purely imperial organization that was directly under the Kaiser himself. And having that, uh, made it really something very important to pass all these laws through the Reichstag to actually finance, fund, and create this navy. Uh, It was very difficult to do so. There were a lot of headwinds in the way. Uh, Many agriculturists, especially, that were very powerful from the uh, Junkers in the east, uh, were very much against having a navy. They saw the continental uh, issues as much more important, not really as interested in colonies, at least in the beginning part of things, uh, until things changed as the growth of the navy and the growth of the colonies uh, economically happened. But passing those laws uh turpitz was a major factor in this basically used various world events uh including british british uh events that happened basically, there was the Boer war uh in in which the British kind of cut off communications to all other colonies in Africa um including german colonies the The Germans took a lot of offense to this um also there were issues in Samoa, as we talked about earlier, the South pacific was an era an area of colonization. Um, and Samoa was a major kind of splitting point between Britain and Germany. Uh, it was very close to Australia, which obviously was a very key British colony. Uh, but it was also close to Hawaii and Guam, which, uh, were at the time parts of the United States after they won the Spanish American war. Um, and so there were various powers jockeying for position. And what ended up happening is that essentially the British and Americans worked together to push the Germans to the side uh, at least for a time and doing this was something that was very antagonistic to the german public uh and uh Terpiz jumped on that he basically used that uh he took the british press and then used their you know belligerent statements as slogan material to push these navy laws basically saying that we need to build this huge navy if we want to have a chance at getting what we deserve yeah. um, and building that out and using that anglophobia to pass those laws was really a big uh, turning point in how the German public uh, thought of the British. Before then, there were definitely more people who were ambivalent or, you know, maybe kind of friendly towards the British. Uh, after that, after those campaigns in the late 1800s, uh, it essentially turned for good. Uh, there were other events that happened around the time as well that, that proved to, to cement that antagonism. Uh, but the, pre- the pushing of that anglophobia during the Navy law debates was was definitely a big part of it. Um, and it became kind of out of control after that, uh, the government really kind of couldn't keep a lid on the Anglophobia. Uh, the press was very, very antagonistic, um, on both sides of the, uh, both sides of the North Sea, there were, uh, big press campaigns against the other power, and that ended up really kind of inflaming public opinion. Um, also it was used for electoral advantage in Germany, uh, Bülow, especially in 1907, uh, they had big elections, and he used colonial issues essentially as a cudgel against the parties that were against him, uh, and won major, major victories. Uh, but his coalition was essentially held together only by the fact that they wanted an expansionist world policy. Uh, so the only reason, the only way that he could keep his political power was by giving them what they voted for and doing that, put them directly in, in, uh, the crosshairs of Britain. And so I think that building up of the internal, uh, negativity towards the other power played a big part in keeping the the antagonism going even when there were places where the governments could agree the publics tend not to after that point in time yeah uh, and i think that made it very much more likely that any war that did spark out between britain and germany would grow into something much more devastating
0: where the um the competition uh, within other nations, uh, was there um, any coordination between the uh, two rivals?
1: So it's interesting. In the in the beginning of the period, both sides basically thought that the joint grouping of France and Russia were their biggest rival. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Britain, France and Russia were the colonial powers that were pushing most on its borders. Uh, for Germany, obviously, France and Russia were on their borders. Mm-hmm. Um, And they always feared encirclement. That was a big thing that was in um, German policy circles, the the fear of being encircled uh, by enemies and being able, you know, having them tear apart the Germany that they just unified, uh, you know, only a few decades earlier. And at the time, I mean, early in the the 1880s and even through some of the 1890s, there were big talks for a potential alliance between Germany and Britain, uh, count to counter uh, France and Russia. But as the growth of world politic happened, it became much, much less likely that could happen. Uh, one of the things Britain was interested in was basically preserving the territory and the economic power that they had uh, abroad. You know, they, they were actually pretty OK with Germany having kind of the whip hand on the continent, as long as they didn't take over France or, you know, really expand their uh, territorial reach uh, on on in Europe. Um, but there were various politicians who did try for these alliances. Bismarck tried for it. Salisbury tried for it. They negotiated with one another. Uh, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, who became a major, major antagonist of, uh, of Germany as time went on, one of the biggest uh, anti-German politicians in Britain, uh, was before that probably the biggest pro-German politician in Britain. And he was really pushing for uh, an Anglo-American-German uh, kind of alliance of the Anglo-Saxons in a way. Um, at the time uh racial racialism and, and social Darwinism was a really big uh, part in mm. terms of how all these empires saw themselves and expanded uh especially especially and so in germany and mm. on a racial basis uh they saw themselves as similar to Britain and to the Americans and kind of having those similarities did portend uh possibly having an alliance uh but as time went on, it became much much harder to do that to work together uh and I think part of that had to do with some of the actions of politicians at the time. Um, you know, Bismarck would really use the power that he had extremely well uh, for Germany, but that tended to bother other powers that ended up on the short short end of that stick. Um, he often, uh, Britain was very vulnerable in Egypt. Uh, they had the Suez Canal, which was really the connection between India, which was the crown of its empire, and Britain proper. Uh, and this control over Egypt was pretty tenuous. Uh, It was not really legal when they occupied it in 1882, Uh, and Bismarck would constantly come back to that, basically threatening investigations or threatening to have an international conference to uh, deal with the Egyptian issue, which Britain clearly did not want. Uh, So he would basically use those threats to get concessions out of Britain, which happened several times over the course of the 1880s, Uh, and that was something that ended up alienating as I said the foreign office as well as other British politicians from you know kind of pushing for that possible alliance Uh, I definitely think there was there was a possibility for that in an alternate universe I think that definitely would have been something that could have been in the cards especially given Kaiser Wilhelm as we talked about being kind of a link in his own person between the two uh, dynasties um but obviously it, it didn't work out that
0: way yeah yeah interesting um Later on uh, in the latter half of the relationship, is there any signs of them trying to work uh, towards common peace or anything like that?
1: Uh, it was more trying to figure out small things that that would be able to work out. Um, so there were thoughts that as, uh, as we talked about, the naval race really became heated as time went on. Uh, the British developed a new ship class called the Dreadnought in 1905, which was essentially the biggest warship that had ever been built at the time. Uh, it had all very, very large guns. It was basically a, a radical departure from previous battleship designs. Uh, and that basically reset the arms race and started all over again. Uh, and both sides really ramped up the production uh, against the other. Essentially, it was it was a one-on-one battle there. Uh, but that was difficult for both of them because, obviously, these ships are very expensive. And uh, the political debates about increasing taxes... Uh, were detrimental for both the leadership of Britain and of Germany uh, and tended to play into, the, play into the, um, the game of the socialists who were threatening both nations at the time. At least the government saw them as such. Uh, basically, internally, uh, the growth of socialism, especially in Germany, was seen as a major thing to be avoided by the government. Uh, Bismarck was not interested in having socialists. He passed anti-socialist laws. Uh, those were continued later on in the in the 1800s, but ended up backfiring. The Socialist Party grew enormously before the World, uh, world War. Um, but they would basically be pushing for more spending of this tax money at home on social programs, welfare, things like that. Whereas the arms race was taking up more and more and more of this uh, taxpayer money on both yeah. sides. So they did try to negotiate for uh, arms race kind of cuts, naval holidays, as they were called. Uh, These didn't work out. Basically, what ended up happening is that it's actually interesting. uh, Winston Churchill was one of the major negotiators. He was the secretary of the admiralty at the time in Britain. Um, But basically, both sides could not work out uh, having having this sort of pause in construction. I think partially it was because any sort of pause would basically cement British dominance. Germany was the one trying to catch up. Britain already had more of these ships had a larger navy, more powerful boats, uh, slightly more technologically advanced. Although once World War I came around, the, the German ships really kind of proved to be more advanced than the British, although there were fewer of them. Uh, but basically the, the deal fell apart because in in some ways Germany didn't really want to make a deal that would put them permanently behind. Um, I, there are definitely p- uh, difficult parts for, for Britain as well for making the deal, especially with the public reaction. Um as you may know, obviously, as this period was going on, mass participation in, in politics really became a thing. Uh, before the 18, late 1800s, really, there was not much in the way of public uh, input in politics. Obviously, Britain had a parliamentary democracy earlier, but it wasn't really very representative. Uh, as time went on, the franchise was expanded in both countries, actually, uh, and became much more the, the people became much more of a factor in politics um, and trying to manage their public opinion through the press and through public pressure groups became a major uh, tactic of politicians uh, and one of the things that really made it difficult for the two companies uh, countries to come together as time went on was was the public itself uh, and both you know politicians on both sides used the public to stoke that animosity earlier but as time went on and they tried for deals, uh, that animosity that was previously politically useful became politically detrimental. Um, and so besides the naval holidays, they did work on some other aspects. Um, infrastructure was a major part of my uh, my thesis. So railways, they had a, a major railway that was a big sticking point between the two was the Berlin Baghdad project, uh, which was essentially a strategic railway that ran all the way from uh, Germany in Europe. Through to the Persian Gulf, um, and we can talk more about that if you'd like. But yes. basically, what happened was that at the end of uh, it, was, it was actually just two weeks before the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, um, Germany and Britain agreed on a deal to uh, kind of get through their last issues on that railway. Uh, there were a few things as to where it would end. Britain kind of had a dominance over the Persian Gulf, so they didn't really want a terminus of this railway on the Persian Gulf to kind of make it easier for Germany to make inroads on India and dominate a lot of the trade that crossed through uh, the Ottoman territories. Um, but they agreed on some things like that, like the end the end of the railway, how it would be financed, uh, things like that. And Britain kind of dropped their objections at this time. Uh, the railway would never be, be finished, obviously, as the That's war right. broke out only two months later. Uh, but the railway actually did play a part in, in, in the war itself in terms of moving troops
0: interesting so the um there there were a few times where they could actually work with one another um how do we see this rivalry play out uh, when the war begins um what do we see the public reacting to one another um the plans uh during the invasions and so forth
1: yeah so it's it's pretty interesting i mean i would argue that really the the only two powers that fought a world war were germany and Britain. Um, they were the only ones that fought one another across all the theaters. Uh, obviously, in Europe, we, we know about all the, the fighting there. Uh, they fought each other in Africa. Uh, there was a very interesting many-year war that was fought, basically a guerrilla war uh, that was fought by German um, military men and colonists in Africa against uh, British fighters, uh, often using a lot of Native, native labor and Native uh, native fighters as well. Um they fought there. They fought, obviously, in the Middle East. Uh, Germany worked with the Ottomans and kind of were deeply embedded in that army. Um, and they even fought in areas like uh, uh, parts of Asia. There were naval battles in the South Pacific and even off of the Americas. Uh, there were major naval battles early in the war on both the West and the East coasts of South America. Um, and those are often theaters that are not really thought about very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're the only they're the only two powers that truly fought. A world war. Um, obviously, you know, different troops from different areas were involved in these different theaters. Uh, but I would contend that, you know, obviously, no one else on the on the um, Triple Alliance side, you know, Austria wasn't really fighting all around the world. Um, Russia clearly was not. France was to a degree, but they often took the secondary uh, role there to Britain, whereas Britain took the secondary role to France in Europe. Um, but when the war started, there was definitely a lot of uh kind of negative feelings that really blew up, obviously, that we were talking about the, the kind of building of the antagonism over time. Uh but people seem to kind of almost be relieved. Uh there's a quote I I have in the thesis from uh, from an observer in Britain who was basically saying that this has been building for 18 years and finally we're getting it out. Um that was obviously in 1914. Uh, I don't think anyone would have had that quote a couple years into the war after the insane damage that was done was uh, obvious to everybody. But essentially, the war—I mean, uh, that that book that I was talking about, Werner, Werner Sombart's *Merchants and Heroes*, uh, was written as a, a couple years into the war, and he basically saw it as a war between Britain and Germany, uh, even though obviously, you know, the the beginning of the war was coming out of the Balkans. And obviously, a main part of the war was, you know, the fight over Alsace-Lorraine, uh, things like that. But really, many observers in Germany, especially very influential ones, saw the main conflict as Anglo-German. Mm-hmm. Um, and Britain, they, fought, they thought the same way. Uh, Germany was obviously the power that they were the most concerned about. Uh, Germany was the power that ended up bringing the Ottoman Empire into the war um with a mad dash of uh, of a couple of warships through the Dardanelles and uh into the Black Sea and you know Britain really saw Germany as the antagonist for the war uh there were many many writers at the time who basically thought that this was a war that had been planned by Germany the whole time uh as we can see from records that really was not the case uh there were definitely people in Germany who were interested in a war uh but many of them were not interested in it until a few years later. Uh, the German naval program would have caught up to the British uh, probably by 1918, 1919, um, but before then they were still far behind. Uh, one of the major you know, kind of turning points, at least in the British mind, for the start of the war was the completion of the Kiel Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a major canal that ran from the Baltic Sea to the North Sea it had existed since the late 1800s, but after the development of the Dreadnought, which was such a bigger ship, they basically had to redredge the whole canal, rebuild it, because these couldn't fit through. Uh, and that was scheduled to be completed in 1915. It was actually finished uh, in 1914, and the opening of it was just three days before Franz Ferdinand was shot. Um, so that that opening was kind of seen, okay, once this is done, Germany will be able to move its major warships back and forth, and fight the war that it was intending to the whole time. Uh, Like I said, that wasn't really something that was supported by the records, at least on the German side. And honestly, not on the British side either. The the British policymakers generally did not see this war as something that Germany intended. Um, They may have spoken that way towards the public as the war started. Uh, But if you read uh, materials from the foreign office or from their private papers, uh, oftentimes, they're just as surprised as anyone else that the war started uh, and kind of see Germany as trying to tamp it down, at least in July. Mm. Um, as July went on and, and things happened later on, it became much more of a, um, of a negative association there And Britain. British policymakers did see Germany as antagonizing the war. Um, part of that was there were proposals made between the two governments where Germany essentially said that they wouldn't do anything to Britain if Britain was neutral uh, and they wouldn't take any colonies or really expand that way. Uh, but Britain really kind of saw that as a, as a slap in the face in a way they saw that as denigrating the, uh, relationship they had with France, especially, uh, also Russia, but mostly France. There was not really a formal alliance between Britain and France before the war. Uh, that was something that kind of is a misnomer often, yeah. uh, But there were very tight links between the British and French militaries, especially the navies. Uh, France essentially moved all of its ships from the Channel to the Mediterranean, uh, leaving their western coast almost entirely undefended. And Britain moved all their ships essentially from the Mediterranean to the North Sea uh, and said that they would defend France's coast if France would defend their possessions in the Mediterranean. Um, Something that was never formally agreed on. But both sides basically had that loyalty to one another. Um, and at the time, again, this is this is one of the, those things that's so interesting about history. Uh, humans are kind of the same throughout history, where there's there's various innate things that humans do, but culturally it was very different. Uh, the culture of honor and loyalty was very very different in the pre-World War One era than it is today. Yeah. Um, the the belief of having you know, the gentleman's word necessarily was was really kind of actually taken very seriously. Um, And that was actually one of the things that I think led the British into, you know, living up to their non-paper commitments to France when the war started. Um, Basically not wanting to be seen as leaving them in the lurch or not living up to their end of the bargain. Uh, Which, I mean, if we think of it today, diplomacy in the modern era is full of you know, lying and not agreeing on things. And if something's not written down on paper, it's not real, essentially. Um, but that wasn't really the case. That wasn't really the case then. Uh, and I think that's one of those interesting cultural artifacts that, that really makes the start of the war more understandable uh, when you think about it in a way where these people were all on all different sides trying to defend their honor, uh, show that they were doing what they said they would do. You know, this is not really part of my thesis, but... Uh, Russia, essentially, you know, obviously Austria and Russia had conflicts over the Balkans for years. Um, the previous several times, Russia kind of ended up losing out uh, or backing down in the face of pressure from Austria and Germany. Uh, there are obviously several wars in the Balkans before World War I. But the reason that World War I started when it did was because Russia basically didn't feel they could back down any further. Mm-hmm. Uh, they and, and a lot of that was because of prestige. They would lose their prestige in the region Um, Kind of historically saw themselves as protectors of the Slavic peoples uh, in that area, which obviously, you know, as as there's a war going on now in in Russia and Ukraine, that's uh, kind of coming up again in terms of that historical expansionary, you know, responsibility, so to speak. Um, But that was something that they thought of a lot at the time and ended up kind of heightening a conflict that may not have needed to have happened or uh, was not guaranteed to explode into a wider, wider war. Um, but all the confluence of those factors in terms of the honor culture, the economics and strategic interests, um, the political motivations, and especially the opinions of the public, um, really kind of inflamed tensions. And I think kind of broke the camel's back there. That, that was that last straw that really set everything over the top and into the war that we ended up having. That was so devastating. And, um, I think one of the things too, is that if anyone really realized how devastating the war would be. I don't think it would have been fought the same way. Um, But that was something, obviously, you know, reading about it, nobody really thought that. There was obviously a few people that were kind of crying out for it, but uh, that was not at all a common sentiment. Um, Always it was over by Christmas. And that when you hit the third or fourth Christmas, that tended to, you know, kind of ring hollow. Um, But after the war, really, Britain was one of the only countries that, didn't have a total um, overthrow of its system and its uh, and its politics. Obviously, there was a labor government which was unthinkable before World War One that that was be uh, a government in Britain. but mm-hmm. that was an elected thing. You know it wasn't it wasn't like what happened in, in Austria-Hungary that you totally broke up the Ottoman Empire, Germany, obviously, Russia, um, the devastation that was wreaked uh, on all of these empires. Uh, after the war was really something that I don't think any policymakers thought was going to come out of it. I, I think they saw, you know, one side winning, having uh, concessions and kind of everyone moving on like they did over the previous century of wars. Uh, but it was much more like the Napoleonic Wars than it was like any of the ones in the in the 19th century otherwise.
0: Yeah, and even, even Britain didn't get out of it completely unscathed. Their empire was... Uh, very shaky after that. They have I forget how many rebellions in between. That oh, was, was a lot. <laughs> but yeah, it's basically the entire empire just goes up in flames for a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, I- and they
1: had to give a lot more political representation to the dominions as well. Canada, South, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and you know internally they lost a generation of uh, politicians almost. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, that made it a lot harder. And, and again, I think the, there's people always debate about the links between World War One and World War Two. But I think one of those links is the kind of the the tendency towards disarmament uh, in the interwar period, Um, obviously very idealistic. But I think the experience of the pre-World War I period where there was such a big arms race uh, ended up really influencing that generation of policymakers to try to avoid that at all costs in the interwar period, which ended up kind of exacerbating what happened in
0: 1939. So, um, it's, there are many, many rivalries that leads up to, you know, war one, you have the, the French and, uh, German, German, Russian, Austrian, Russian, Austrian, Italian. Um, what made you decide to, uh, focus on the British German rivalry?
1: So I think one of the things, uh, I a lot of my studying, uh, is related to British history. So that was one of the, one of the things driving me that way. Um, But I think the biggest thing for me is that I see a lot of – I'm very interested in great power conflict and geopolitics. That's mostly what I write about and study. And I saw that rivalry as really the one that defined the era. Um, Obviously, Britain was the global power at the time. Mm -hmm. It was the British system that was the one that kind of ruled the roost and that everyone else was adapting to. Uh, And I saw Germany as truly the rising power. Uh, It was either Germany or the United States. But – There was that turning point in the early 1900s where essentially that split between Britain and Germany and the special relationship, so to speak, between uh, Britain and the United States was kind of cemented. Um, So to see Germany as that rising power that was really coming into its own economically, was trying to catch up and expand and kind of um, almost avenge the fact that they didn't have the same past as these other powers, Uh, almost that they were overlooked, that they didn't have the ability to do what they wanted to do until they were unified, which was so much later than, obviously, France and Britain have have been in their almost modern states for for centuries before then. Um, So I think that kind of big brother, little brother split, uh, especially with the cultural similarities was something that drew me to it. And uh, one of the things, honestly, that drew me to it also was that I see a lot of parallels with the modern day. Um, With the relationship between the United States and China, especially Uh, kind of the U.S. mapping onto Britain's position and China mapping onto Germany's. Uh, Obviously, no historical analogies are perfect. Um, You can't really ever, you know, rely on something like that. But I do tend to see a lot of similarities in terms of the uh, dual nature economic strategic competition between the, the powers as well as the economic challenges. Um, that Germany posed to Britain and China poses to the United States. Um, and in terms of infrastructure, which I'm very interested in, um, China now has a large uh, international project of infrastructure investment and expansion, uh, which felt very similar to me to a lot of the policies that Germany uh, undertook, as well as Britain at the time. Um, so kind of seeing those similarities was one of the things that drove me to study that particular relationship.
0: So um but, uh, before we wrapped up I just wanted to ask you uh what what got you into wanting to study history
1: So I've been interested in history for for most of my life uh my dad used to travel a lot for work when I was a kid and he would always come back from all these different places and you know bring me a little tchotchke or memento and I would always be so curious to read about these places when when he'd come back from them and that kind of got me into reading more about the history of them and the past um I was always fascinated by by European history. Um, my my roots are French Canadian, so uh, I, I was always very interested in in kind of the roots of colonization, and imperialism abroad. Uh, that was something interesting for me to study. But uh, in college, I pursued accounting. I was a CPA for several years, uh, and ended up wanting to totally change change careers. I wanted to write. Uh, that's really what I enjoy doing. And, and history is just a topic that is endlessly fascinating to me. It's one of those things that I'll never get tired of doing and kind of putting myself in someone else's shoes and seeing the similarities, but also kind of experiencing the massive differences. You know, the, the famous quote, you know, the past is a foreign country, I think is, is very true in many ways oh, yeah. and trying to, you know, understand people in a different circumstance than myself and trying to understand themselves as they saw themselves was, I think, uh, really what drove me and attracted me to history and kind of, trying to understand these events that we see now and the benefit of, you know, 2020 hindsight, trying to understand what people saw at the time and kind of how that picture looked different to them. Um, and especially World War I, that, that was something that I think is really important there. Is obviously now looking back, it kind of seems like what, what was the point? Uh, but at the time when you're, when you're kind of going into it from what they saw in Britain, Germany, and in various other countries as well, you don't see it at all the same way. Uh, and I think having that you know ability to expand your horizons is important for for all people so I think you know public pe- pe- people that are generally interested in history read about it listen to podcasts like this one it's it's great to kind of build your knowledge and get a flavor of what things might have been like in another period in another place
0: great um now that you've you've uh, got your thesis uh, successfully defended uh, what what's the next step for you what do you want to do
1: yeah, so my plans are, uh, I'm trying to extend the thesis into something longer, whether a scholarly monograph or a book. Uh, kind of trying to expand on some of the arguments made, I made as well as uh, adding some additional sources. Like I said, I'd love to talk more about individuals. I didn't really have the chance to do that, but some of the people, the personalities involved are fascinating. Um, so doing that, uh, I write about foreign policy and uh, modern, uh, modern events as well with respect to international affairs. Uh, so doing a lot of that uh, on my blog at rationalpolicy.com. Um, and I'm also interested in uh, probably later this year, early next year, I plan on starting my own podcast on uh, imperial history, basically uh, taking various imperial conflicts, kind of like what I do with my thesis and exploring the geopolitics of it on kind of a, a big picture level. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of what's going on going forward and looking forward to kind of engaging more with the public on, on historical topics.
0: Awesome. Well, we will keep an eye out for that when it comes out. Great. So thank you so much for coming on to the show and uh, telling us a little bit about your thesis. Um, again, congratulations on defining it. That is a massive step uh, for any um, any student. And so, yeah, thank
1: you very much. I appreciate it very much. Awesome. It's, uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you.
0: It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks.